0: It's 1 Samuel 21, verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen, that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house?' David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men.
1: Psalm 34. Of David... When he changed his behaviour before Abimelech, so that he drove him out, and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles Amen. Now let's pray before we look at this a bit more closely together. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that by your grace, you have revealed yourself to us in your word, the Bible. And this evening, as we study that word together, we ask that you would use it to help us see you more clearly and love you more deeply. We ask that you would give us all attentive minds and malleable hearts, and we pray that in the words that are spoken, and that in the quiet of our hearts and minds, we would bring you glory. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, in one of the rare sunny moments that we've enjoyed over the past few weeks, you might have found yourself standing in the three-mile-long queue outside Luca's Ice Cream, just down the road at Holy Corner, along with 90% of the population of the greater Edinburgh area. The other 10% have usually given up and gone and got a calippo instead. And it's a great moment when you finally get your hands on that long-awaited ice cream. But no matter how hot you've been, how uncomfortable you've been, no matter how good that ice cream is, it is nigh on impossible to ever fully communicate exactly what it's like to someone else, isn't it? We can get kind of close. We can try explaining what it tastes like by reference to other things. You can try describing how it makes you feel. But the only way that someone will ever really know what you're talking about is if you hand them the spoon You've got to try this for yourself, and that's only if you're feeling generous. If it's really good, then you won't hand them the spoon. See, personal recommendations are good. They paint part of the picture. But we know ourselves from our own experience, whether it's with food or a film, a holiday destination, a book, a view, a joke, a song. If someone is really going to be able to see what you're banging on about, they need to try it themselves, don't they? And that's the big idea in the psalm that we're going to be studying together this evening, Psalm 34. See, it's clear from the opening verses of the psalm that David, the author of the psalm, is pretty excited. He's excited about his God. So verse one, read it again with me. I will bless the Lord at all times, says David. His praise shall continually be in my mouth, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. He doesn't waggle in the tea, does he? He doesn't take a while to get his steam up. Just comes straight out the blocks, absolutely raring to go, wanting to praise God. And as well as praising God, David is personally recommending that God to his hearers or his listeners. Verse 2, he says, let the humble hear, that's hear my recommendation of God, let the humble hear and be glad. But the point of Psalm 34 is that it isn't quite enough that David's hearers hear how excited David is about God. See, after seven verses of praising, of explaining why his God is so good, of inviting his listeners to join him, we reach verse 8, where David hands us the spoon. Oh, taste, and see that the Lord is good. Guys, you need to try this for yourself. You need to taste it. You need to personally experience and enjoy and savor the goodness of God. And it's a wonderful invitation, isn't it? And it's an invitation that's open to all of us this evening. Taste and see just how good this God, David's God, the God of the Bible, taste and see how good he really is. But as we think about that invitation together this evening, we might ask ourselves exactly why it is that David is so excited about his God. What reason does he have for recommending him to us? And from these opening verses, we might get the impression that it's because David is enjoying a bit of a mountaintop experience in his life. See, he's so full of joy, he's so excited, he's so full of praise of his God. And if you've ever had verse 8 quoted to you before, which I suspect some of us may have, it's probably been during the course of your own mountaintop experience in life. For example, a couple of months ago, some of you, I would hope, uh, will know that my wife and I had our first child, a son called Finley. He's somewhere in the building this evening with his mum, and if you listen really carefully and you're really quiet, you might even be able to hear the sound of him cringing at being mentioned in his first ever sermon illustration. (laughs) Well, shortly after Finn was born, I was sent a text message by a friend who was really excited for us, so thankful at Finn's safe arrival, and he quoted this verse. He said, taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's how we often think of this famous verse. It's how we often use this famous verse, isn't it? That mountaintop, that wonderful experience in life is a mark of God's goodness to us. So, taste and see how good God is by enjoying that experience, by enjoying the good things that he's given to us. But as we dig a little deeper in Psalm 34, we see that that isn't really where David's coming from. See, he didn't write it whilst staring out over a beautiful vista. He didn't write it whilst celebrating the birth of his first son or while enjoying a lovely ice cream on a sunny day. In fact, Psalm 34 was written at a time when things looked pretty shaky for David And that's what we're going to think about under our first heading this evening. If you have a service sheet with you, if you're handed one of those on the way in, there are just a couple of headings that might help us as we walk through Psalm 34 together. The first of those, taste and see the goodness of the Lord, a promise of provision. Now, as we read together, I wonder if you noticed the little heading right at the top of Psalm 34. Before we even get to the numbered verses, read it with me, of David, it says, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Now, that little heading was written by David himself, and we might be tempted to gloss over it, but it's really important that we don't if we're going to get our heads around what's going on here, because it allows us to pinpoint exactly what was going on in David's life when he sat down to write Psalm 34. Most of us will be familiar with the story of David, the shepherd boy, defeating the giant, the terrifying giant Goliath with a slingshot and a couple of pebbles. Well, after that victory, David had a bit of a meteoric rise to prominence in Israel. He led Israel's armies into all sorts of battles. He became a bit of a conquering hero. And all of a sudden, this young shepherd boy, as humble as his roots had been, became a bit of a threat to the king of Israel, to King Saul, People were comparing Saul and David. They'd written songs about it. And David was coming out on top. He was the golden boy. So King Saul decided to handle that threat. And the threat was so serious that the only way he felt he could handle it was by trying to kill David. It's very extreme. So David was forced to go on the run, and he went into hiding. Now, take a step back for a moment. If you're David, where is the last place on earth that you'd want to go to hide? Well, you probably wouldn't want to go to King Saul's palace to hide, but where else wouldn't you want to go? Remember, you've just killed Goliath, the Philistine giant. You've just killed lots of his countrymen. So the last place you would want to go is to Goliath's home country, isn't it? But what about Goliath's hometown, Gath? Well, surely that's the last place you'd want to go to. But bizarrely, in the reading we had earlier this evening from 1 Samuel 21, we read that that's just where he went. It's a bonkers decision when we're honest. We don't really know why he chose to go there, of all places. But when he got to Gath, the inevitable happened. He was dragged before the king of the Philistines, a guy called Abimelech, or nicknamed Achish. And that takes us right up to that reading from 1 Samuel 21. As you might expect, the Philistines are baying for David's blood. This is the guy who has killed their hero, their champion, Goliath, who's killed their friends and family, who's made widows of women of Philistia, and he's fallen right into their laps. What a gift. David finds himself in a tight spot, Until, in true Blackadder fashion, and in every bit as harebrained a fashion as Blackadder, he has a cunning plan. And we read about that in 1 Samuel 21 verse 13, where he says, David pretended to be insane in their presence, and while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. In a last-ditch attempt to escape, David pretends that he's not worth keeping as a prisoner. He's lost his mind altogether. And surprisingly and bizarrely, it worked. Akish decided to let David go. He was free. Now, if you're anything like me, you probably haven't spent all that much time thinking about that story recently, but it is a pretty bizarre tale, isn't it? And it's so bizarre that it's almost funny. I mentioned Blackadder a few minutes ago, But it's a bit more like a James Bond parody or the sort of thing Inspector Clouseau might find himself getting up to, running from one disaster into another disaster. But when we take a step back, we start to see how this story might apply to us. Because when we think about it from David's perspective, we realize that the situation probably wasn't quite so entertaining or quite so funny was actually pretty desperate. Think of where he'd been. He'd been Israel's hero. He was the golden boy. He was on the mountaintop of life. People were literally writing songs about him. And then things start to unravel. His king starts to dislike him, then to envy and distrust him, then to try and kill him. He had to run away from his home, from his friends being chased by his own people and fearing for his life. And as if things couldn't get any worse, they do. He finds himself in the hands of the only people who want him dead more than Saul does, the Philistines. So what we read about in 1 Samuel 21 was David staring down the barrel of a gun. Things looked utterly, utterly hopeless until Back to Psalm 34, reading from verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. David was facing a terrible death at the hands of people who really hated him. And even if he got out, he was still being chased by his own king. Things in his life looked utterly, utterly hopeless. But despite the fact that through his own cunning plan and his own quick thinking, his own ingenuity, he managed to somehow escape from that plight. He doesn't attribute the escape to his own quick thinking. He gives credit where credit is due. He says, verse four, that he sought God and God delivered him. He says, verse six, God heard his cries for help and saved him out of his troubles. And he says, verse seven, the angel of the Lord protected him, encamped around him, delivered him. God was faithful to David in his time of trouble, so, verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Look at just how he rescued me from the most hopeless of situations. Now, we thought earlier about how we usually tend to apply this taste and see principle. It's a celebration of the mountaintop experiences we have in life when life is going well. But when we get our heads around that background in 1 Samuel, it changes how we apply that psalm, doesn't it? David issues this invitation to enjoy God's goodness, not because life is good. He issues an invitation to enjoy God's goodness, not because life is easy, because frankly, it isn't easy. And yet in the middle of really dire life circumstances, David says, taste and see that the Lord is good because God was faithful to me. God rescued me. Psalm 34 isn't about mountaintop experiences. It speaks right into the seemingly hopeless situations we face in life. Now, most of us, I hope, won't be facing certain death at the hands of our enemies this week. If we are, then please come and speak to someone at the end of the service. But a lot of us will start the week thinking about situations that we're going to face that feel pretty hopeless, whether it's a situation at work that, well, it seems irresolvable, whether we have friendship that's on the rocks and we just can't see how it's possibly going to get any better. Perhaps you feel really, really lonely in life and you cannot see any possible way that that's going to improve. Things seem bleak. Well, Psalm 34 speaks right into the middle of the mess and hopelessness that we often feel in life. Now, it's important we remember that we aren't David. God doesn't promise to rescue us every time that life looks or feels hopeless, like he did for David. But the promise he does make is no less comforting, because instead of deliverance, instead of rescue, David promises provision. Read verses 9 and 10 with me. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Notice the illustration he uses in verse 10. He says, young lions, well, they'll grow weak and hungry. But when you think about it, what could be more strong and impressive and self-sufficient than a young lion? And yet he says that even the strongest looking of us, the most self-sufficient of us, we do not have the resources in and of ourselves to get out of the hopeless situations we find ourselves in in life. So David says, instead of expecting God to remove you from your difficulty... Or instead of verse 10, relying on your own strength to battle on through hopelessness, David says, fear God and seek God and you will lack no good thing. He will provide. Well, that's all well and good, you might be thinking. But you don't know what my situation is. And frankly, if God doesn't promise to take that situation away from me or me out of that situation, What can he offer me that's of any comfort at all? We'll read on in verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The promise of provision is that God will provide us with himself, that he will be near you in your helplessness and your hopelessness, that he will comfort the brokenhearted. Now, knowing that will completely reorient the way we pray when things are hard and life seems hopeless, won't it? So as you think ahead to this coming week, you think of those hopeless situations we were reflecting on a moment or two ago. Instead of just asking God for rescue from our trouble, that's what I usually pray for when things are hard. Instead of just asking for him to take it away, whatever that trouble is, Ask for him. Instead of seeking deliverance, seek God, says David. Ask that he would be near you. Ask that he would comfort you. He would strengthen you. Do that, says David. And regardless of how hopeless things might look in life, when you're staring down the barrel of a gun, you will be able to taste and see just how good God is. Psalm 34 isn't a promise of rescue. It's a promise of of provision. And if you're really struggling this evening, I hope you do find that of some comfort. But we can't just end there, because despite what I've just said about David not promising deliverance, we read on to the second half of the psalm, and David seems to unpick everything I've just said, doesn't he? Verse 17, when the righteous cry out for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. That sounds like a promise of rescue to me. Well, it is, but not quite the kind of rescue we might expect. See, in the first half of the psalm, David is looking back to 1 Samuel 21. But in the second half of the psalm, David takes that experience and he casts it forward. His gaze shifts to the forward horizon. And instead of promising that God will rescue us whenever we face difficulty in life, David tells us about an even greater difficulty and he promises an even greater rescue. And we'll see that under our final heading this evening. Verses 11 to 22. Listen and learn the fear of the Lord. Verse 11. Come, O children, says David. Listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So in verse 11, David metaphorically puts his arm around our shoulder. He says, come here, I want to tell you a lesson. What is the lesson? He says he wants to show us or to teach us the fear of the Lord. Now, we might think that the idea of the fear of the Lord sits pretty uncomfortably alongside this principle of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. They're two opposing things, aren't they? Fear is a negative emotion, isn't it? Well, not in this context. See, fear of God isn't so much about being terrified of him in Psalm 34, as it is about viewing him rightly, seeing him for who he is. In the second half of the Psalm, David wants to show us just who God is. And he does that by giving us a character sketch of God. He collects the whole of humanity into two different categories. There are the righteous, and there are those who do evil, or the wicked. And he shows us just what God is like. He gives us this character sketch by telling us how God deals with these two different categories of people. So, verse 16, read it with me. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Verse 21, affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Condemned. That's how God will deal with those who do evil, with this category of people, the wicked. So just who are the wicked? Who are those who do evil? Well, our minds might drift to the Adolf Hitlers of this world. We're tempted to think that only a select few fall into the wicked camp and that everyone else, well, they're probably in the righteous camp. But that isn't how David, or in fact, how the rest of the Bible carves humanity up. The Bible draws the line down humanity with one person in the righteous camp and the rest of us on the other side of that line. The Bible tells us that by nature, every one of us who has ever walked the face of this earth, bar one, is wicked or falls into that camp. We have all turned our back on God and rejected his kingship over our lives. That's what the Bible calls sin. Sin. Sin isn't just something we do or we don't do. That's usually a symptom of an underlying problem. Sin is an inclination. It is the bent of our hearts away from God and towards ourselves. And in the second half of this psalm, David is saying that as desperate as his situation was in Gath, and as desperate as the situation you might be facing at work is or at home is, there is a much more serious situation that you need to address Because of that sin, we all stand in the dock, rightly condemned. See what he says in verse 16 the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. That's extreme. And yet, the message of Psalm 34 is that we are rightly in that camp. We are guilty of treason against the King of the universe. Guilty of the betrayal of a loving father. That is the weight of verses 16 and 21. And it's a weight we're not just meant to think about. It's a weight we're meant to feel when we read this psalm. We're meant to see how hopeless things are. That's our Abimelech moment. That apart from God, we stare down the barrel of a gun. And we need to feel the seriousness of that situation. So let me ask you this evening, have you ever felt the weight of that, the seriousness of that situation. Because it is only when you feel that seriousness, it is only when you address the hopelessness of your situation on your own that Psalm 34 carries an overwhelming sweetness that it is meant to carry It's only when you see the hopelessness of your spiritual situation that you are able to taste and see just how good the Lord is. Verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears towards their cry. Verse 22. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. See, instead of getting what we deserve... God offers something so wonderful to those of us who cry out to him, who will acknowledge quite how bleak things are for us spiritually and realize that we desperately, desperately need to be rescued. 1 Samuel 21 is a rescue story. It's a picture of being saved from a seemingly hopeless situation. And Psalm 34 takes that story and applies it to us to show us we need a rescue from definite condemnation and wonderfully, gloriously tells us that we can be rescued only, verse 22, by taking refuge in our Savior. There's an old hymn that articulates it far better than I ever could. Speaking about Jesus, it says this, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself or take refuge in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Psalm 34 tells us exactly what we deserve for rejecting God. It's his rejection of us, but God did not give us what we deserve. He gave us Jesus. Now, if the weight of that sin is your experience this evening, if you do feel hopeless and helpless and you see how serious this situation is, then cry out to him. Cast that sin at the foot of his cross and take refuge Hide yourself in him. If you've never done that before, if you've never asked him to save you, then think on those words. No one who takes refuge in him, no one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. That is wonderful news. And if you have done this before, if you're a Christian this evening, then perhaps it's been a while since you reflected On quite how big a deal that is. It's easy as Christians to become a bit long in the tooth, isn't it? Life crowds in and we're just too busy plodding on. We've got rotas to stick to, we've got work to keep our heads above water in. Well, this evening, Psalm 34 really casts the light on how bleak things were for us before we knew Jesus. Look at just where it was that you were headed. And taste and see the goodness of the Lord in rescuing you from that. It is such sweet news. It means that one day when we stand before him, as we all will, we will not face the condemnation we deserve. But as we close our thing together this evening, as well as being good news for the future, good news for that one day when we stand before him, it's good news now It's good news in the middle of the helpless and hopeless situations that you'll face this week. How do we know that? Well, look at just how far your God went to be near you. We know that we can trust the promise in verse 18 that God will be near us in the middle of hardships and difficulties in life because of the cross. When you see the almighty God of the universe dying a criminal's death for you, you know that he cares for you. And you know that you can trust him. Taste and see just how much he loves you that he was willing to rescue you from that eternal death sentence at the cost of his own son. Verse 22, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. That is the good news of Jesus and what wonderful, wonderful news it is. Taste and see. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you this evening for your rescue of David from certain death at the hands of Abimelech, that when he cried out to you, you saved him. And as we cast that towards our own lives, we thank you for the promise that you won't necessarily remove us from our troubles in life, but that you will be with us through them. And Lord, this evening we reflect on the most serious of all of our troubles, our spiritual Abimelech, the fact that we are all sinful. We have all turned our backs on you and worshiped ourselves. And as a result, we are all rightly condemned for that rejection of you. But as bleak as that trouble is, we thank you that you will and that you have rescued us by the blood of your own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us this evening to taste and to see the sweetness of that good, good news and the sweetness of our good good Savior. In your name we pray. Amen.